You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Danielle Skensos, and I make pottery for a living. Danielle Skensos is the owner of Shira Lee Pottery in Oramadante, Ontario. She makes functional wheel-thrown pottery in her home studio on a 10-acre farm. She's inspired by her rural surroundings and the idea that sharing food and drink in pottery helps one appreciate the small, simple moments that make life beautiful. Here's my chat with Danielle Skensos. Who are you and what do you make for a living? My name is Danielle Skensos and I make handmade pottery and my business is called Cheerly Pottery. What made you want to get into pottery? Originally, I wasn't in pottery. I studied health sciences and then went on to get a master's degree in teaching. And it was when I was first teaching in Toronto uh, that I kept driving past a little pottery studio. And I ended up taking some lessons just uh, for fun. But it it didn't take long um, before, you know, I was being booted out of that studio and uh, kind of fell in love with it as well. So you overstayed your welcome, basically. Yes. Every Wednesday <laughs> evening, I overstayed my welcome. Did you do any pottery as a kid? No. Uh, I think our local high school, we did a two-week hand-building session. And I still have a little Winnie the Pooh or you know, some type of sculpture that I had made then. But I, we never had any intro to the wheel, which is what I really like. So... You, you, you fall in love with pottery, with, with, with the wheel, with the kiln, the smell, the feel of clay. I don't know. Is that something one falls in love with? Yeah. What made you want to continue? I just found it really relaxing and fun. And I kind of had a knack for it right away with uh, throwing on the wheel. So that definitely helps keep you, like piques your interest and you want to stick with something. And then, yeah, it was definitely just a hobby at the beginning until I made too many things that we just couldn't keep them all. (laughs) (laughs) So it was basically a surplus of stuff made you have to start selling these things. Yes. What was your first foray into selling stuff? Uh, So we had moved back from Toronto to our hometown in Oromodonti. And uh, my first thing was the Aurelia Folk Festival and Kemp and Vest in Barrie. So you had too many things in your house and you had to get selling. Yes. Some people would just stop making stuff, but instead you decided, no, I'm going to actually put together a business and start selling these things. I, I don't know where that really came from, except that every person that I gave or shared pottery with really, really liked it. So my feedback was very positive and encouraging. And uh, so I kind of just thought, oh, I'll just try and see if if there's any takers and there was, so it, it was nice, but I should mention that that was 10 years ago and there was a very large gap because that first year I had a one-year-old and I was pregnant with my second and still thought, Oh, I'll be able to do this and teach full time and uh, life happened. So It's only been in this past year that I started up again and kind of able to devote more time to my business. Right. Because you said you've got, you've got three active boys at home on the farm and you're teaching part-time and you're running this business. Yes. So, you know, you must never sleep, I'm assuming. I do sleep, but, but yes, it's busy. (laughs) 
What do you hope to achieve with uh, with your pottery business, knowing that you still have a, a foot in the teaching arena, and obviously family is, is important and takes a great deal of time? What's your ultimate goal? Right now, my goal is sanity, and I do find the pottery helps, you know, kind of mitigate the stress that you find elsewhere. So teaching I love teaching. It's a fantastic job and I really enjoy spending time with kids, but it it is stressful in classrooms now and the demands are very high. And to go from, you know, six o'clock when you wake up or seven and have kids with you and then be with other people's children all day and then your own kids come home. I guess I felt like I wasn't always giving the best to my own kids. I'd be tired or just lack that energy. So having some time where I have a quiet job, which would be in my studio a couple days a week. I just feel like it refreshes me for all of my other parts that I have to play. So how do you go about making a pot? What's your process? Okay, so if I were to use a mug as an example, you take the wet clay and you wedge it, which is similar to kneading bread. And uh, you're kind of aligning all those clay cells and making it into a round ball that is more easily able to center once you get it on the wheel. And then once it's on the wheel, you use your hands and water to first compress and center and then pull your clay up into the form that you would like. Right. And this is sort of a very delicate process. You don't want to just shove your hand into it or else it's going to just disintegrate basically and fall off the wheel. And I seem to remember doing that a lot when I was messing around with the wheel when I was 11. Yeah. Quick movements on the wheel don't work very well. Although some potters are very quick at throwing, they're still, their movements are very smooth. Okay. So you've got it on the wheel and you're starting to coax it upwards into the shape that it's going to ultimately wind up being. What's the next, what's the next step? Okay. So once you have the form that you are happy with, you would then wire off your piece. So usually you throw on a bat or another surface on top of the wheel, and you don't want that piece to be stuck to whatever you have thrown it on. So you will take a wire, wire it off, and then set it aside to dry. And when you say wire it off, you mean it's kind of like a uh, James Bond villain who's, who's got the that wire and he's going to choke somebody out with it, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. This is not used for murder, but it's, exactly. it's the same principle. Yes. Okay. So you've taken it off and then obviously you're putting it down somewhere pretty delicately because this thing can still fall apart at this point, right? Uh, it's fairly sturdy. It's wet though. So again, smooth movements. If you are at all able, most people would leave it on the bat. So even though you wire it, you would just lift the full piece. It's almost like a little plate underneath it. You'd lift the plate and put the plate aside so that uh, you're not disturbing your piece. At, at that stage, the clay is still wet. You have to let it dry until it's leather hard, which would mean that it has that consistency of leather. It feels like that, but you could still trim more clay off. So some Sometimes it would be, depending on how warm it is and how dry, you might be able to trim, if you throw something in the morning, you could trim later that day. Oh, okay. It's that fast to turn around. Yeah. So then when you're trimming, you're looking at the bottom of your piece to see, is it smooth? Does the weight feel correct? Do you need a foot? So you'd be looking at all those different things that make a piece whole. And is this mostly just done by feel? Like you're, you, it's just experience. It's just making a ton of different things to know, yeah, this one's going to turn out all right. 
you do a lot by feel, but when you're beginning to learn, um, a good strategy is to cut your pieces in half, which uh, beginner potters don't really like to do because, <laughs> because it takes a lot of work to get their piece made. But if you cut your pieces in half, you can see how the weight is distributed. Um, if you have unevenness in your walls. Right, like a literal cross-section. I can imagine a lot of people are like, oh, I think I did a pretty good one here. I want to see this all the way through to the end and yes. instead really to learn, to get better. Really what they need to do is destroy it. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a little painful. It's painful uh, when I'm giving classes, even my students, I'll do, I'll do it for my students to show them, you know, how things should look. And it, they find it really painful for me to do it even on my piece. <laughs> They must just be so happy they got something that even resembles a bowl at, yeah. this, at the yes. initially. And then here you are, you're going to slice it in half. Yes, they like their ashtrays. <laughs> tough love, tough love. <laughs> yeah. So once you've you've gotten into that leather stage then, and let's assume you haven't you know, chopped it in half and destroyed someone's day, what's your next step? If you're adding a handle, you would do that at that point as well once you're trimming. Or some people will add the handle first and then trim, but it's all in that same leather hard stage. Even though the handle itself wouldn't be hard at that point, though. Like, in other words, that would be fully malleable and you would just let it harden after the fact, right? Yeah, so it depends. Some people choose to, you know, attach a lug or a little piece of clay to the side of their cup and then they pull the handle directly on the cup. And other people will form a handle and let it set up a little bit or dry and then add it on once it's a little firm. And, and then at that point, you've got something that looks like a cup. Yes. But it's obviously far from finished. And then what do we do? From there, you let it dry to basically until it's cool to touch. So you don't want any moisture left in your piece before you put it in that kiln for the first time. Uh, so a lot of people will... It, like let them sit for a week, you know, making sure and larger pieces, sometimes longer, depending on how much clay is involved. And then it would go in the kiln the first time to, um, they call it a bisque fire. They basically go up a little over 1800 degrees. And when they come out of that, they are firm to touch, you know, they're still fragile, but um, then you can begin adding your glaze and decorations. And then once you've done your glaze and your decorations, you're firing it again. Is that right? Yes. Then it goes back in for a final firing. So how many of these do you do in a day? 20 at a time is usually how I do things only because I run out of bats. I'm a small studio and then keeping up with all of the trimming that would happen later that day or the next day, I might do 20 cups and... 20 of something else that doesn't take as much time as adding all those handles. Yeah, you never really think about the about the impact of just adding something as, as, as little as a handle. There are a lot of steps to mugs. It's funny, you know, people don't want them to be that expensive, but they're quite a bit of work actually compared to some of the other little items that you wouldn't have to do those things for. Right. And in my experience, it takes almost nothing to break a mug. So yes. are you doing all this by yourself? Yes. So you're a one-person operation in terms of production. Are you a one-person operation in terms of the marketing, the distribution, your legal, your financial? Are you are you handling the whole thing? At this point, yes, because it's not really financially viable enough for me to hire out things. But I should mention that at all of my shows, I have a booth helper and I bring 
my mom <laughs> and she she helps me and we people watch together and meet a lot of new interesting folks from my discussions with other folks that going to these markets it doesn't matter if you're bringing mugs or if you're bringing something completely light i mean you could be a comic book artist and still it's amazing the amount of stuff that you have to bring out it's amazing what it is to put a booth together yes are markets your major sales avenue or are you selling elsewhere as well right now I would say I have two places. So one would be the markets, which unfortunately this year seem to be shutting down quite quickly. And uh, I also sell at a local shop. It's called the Maker's Market in Aurelia. It's run by a company called the Northern Joinery. They do beautiful resin tables and they opened a shop that showcases their tables, but then they've also invited artists to sell there as well. So that has been good, except that, of course, now they're shut down too. It sounds like a good idea when operational, obviously. If you've got tables, it makes a lot of sense to uh, put housewares on it, to put plates and mugs and things to even give a sense, throw a couple of paintings on the wall from local artists as well to give a sense of what it is to live with it with one of their pieces as well as your pieces. Yeah, they've been great. It's been really nice having my stuff in their store. So in addition to markets, which obviously are on hold right now, and obviously in-store is non-existent, sadly, have you been looking online? How are you working with social media? How are you working with your website? Do you do a lot of sales that way? No, I have not done a lot of sales that way. I have done direct sales from people contacting me through my website or through Instagram locally, but I am looking to maybe shift. It was on my list of goals this year to have an online store of at least small pieces that would be more suitable for shipping. But it it is a difficult time. I feel as much as I love pottery, it's not a necessity at this moment for people. It's interesting to hear you say that because art and the niceties of life are those things that kind of help everybody feel a lot more normal, a lot more reasonable, despite the fact that there's something maybe less than great going on around them. Is, is buying a new mug really high on a lot of people's priority list? Maybe not, but there is an importance to all this because one could say no matter what's going on in life, art and craft, theater and music and everything, they're all frivolities, aren't they? And yet we keep making them and we all seem attracted to them. And there's got to be a reason why. Yes. And I do agree with you saying, you know, that those beautiful items in our life do make us difference a difference or sharing them with others. Certainly makes a difference. Uh, I think more I was concerned with having not had an online store yet and dealt with shipping and, you know, some of the supply chain issues there. Having a startup at this point, I guess I just have a lot of concerns about the safety of packaging and uh, how I would go about that just to make sure that, you know, it's not, it's not going to cause any illness anywhere right illness let alone breakage and, yes. and everything in between um yeah there's there would be a lot to consider starting up right now yeah and yet at the same time it's a good time to do research you know i always find that times that are out of our own control are really a good time to do our homework obviously you can fill your day with netflix and keep streaming keep streaming and i'm sure lots of folks do but if you've got a business i, I can guarantee there's a side of the business that has been under attended to and generally speaking, it's probably the marketing, the distribution, those other channels. And, um, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to, to research that and, exp and, and explore it. Yes. So that's where I would say I am right now. I'm in research mode. 
Um, I do have all of the parts on my website so that I can sell when I'm ready. So that's, I have set that part up. So now I'm just kind of looking into boxing and things like that. You know, I'm not sure that it's going to happen, but I'm hoping maybe later April to be able to attempt to get a few things out for Mother's Day. Do you find you do a lot of sales around holidays? Yes, uh, definitely holidays. And most of the sales in the summer also because people are out, they're shopping for themselves, but they're also, you know, thinking and shopping for those holidays in between. You, You said you do teaching. Yes. But you also teach pottery. Yes. Is it possible to pivot pottery teaching in any way? Could you actually teach people if they had their own clay in front of them? Is there stuff that they, that could actually be augmented in order to continue to teach uh, to teach pottery that way? Yes, I think I have seen people online have either you know a Patreon set up or where you can order specific classes and then you get a video or a download of that video. So it is something, but uh, it's not something that I have done as of yet. We're in a world where you're expected to be good at all of these different things just in order to... It used to be that if you were a potter, if you were a really good potter, you, you're, you're, it was word of mouth and you yes. had a little shop and people either came or they didn't. And that's how it was. And there was no additional sales channels. There was no... You didn't have to know SEO. You didn't have to know web design. You didn't have to constantly be feeding social media with, with content, reaching out and finding people. So, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting time where we're expected to be excellent at all these things. And uh, and it's awfully hard to actually become even remotely okay at any of them. <laughs> yeah, I'm certainly not excellent at many of those things. <laughs> I don't think most people are. I think there's people who may seem to be really good at social media uh, as part of their business. But the reality is, is all they're doing is sending out a lot of it. Yes. It doesn't make you good at it. Right. So there's there's a quality versus quantity kind of question And what I find interesting about your business is you're interested in having a good functional business that's going to work for you and not something that you're constantly going to have to be feeding. Yes. I'm not interested. Well, I guess I just don't presume to become, you know, a full-time potter at this point because it just wouldn't work for my family at this point. You know, my three boys, they love hockey, rep hockey, unfortunately, and... (laughs) And um, like right now is a prime example of how if, if this was my only revenue, we would be in trouble. I have to have a diverse income, I guess, to be able to protect my family. And maybe once they are older and off on their own, I could put two feet in. Right now, I just, I'm not able to do that. So I I guess it's a benefit and a drawback. The benefit would be that I wouldn't feel the same pressure to do some things just to get more people on social media or just to get into shows that I heard other people are getting into because I, I might not need it the same as someone if it was their full-time income. But the drawback is, you know, it's easy to say that something's part-time, but... <laughs> You know, my husband teases me that since doing part-time pottery, I'm working weekends, I'm working evenings, I'm working the time that the kids are at school. So yeah, to me, that's the difference between a hobby and a passion. Yeah. Because you could just do pottery in the evenings when you had time. Yes. That could be what you're doing. But because you have a passion for it, because it's grabbed hold of you, you're allowing it to have more impact on your life and and add more to your life. Yeah. That's kind of the gist of this. Yes, Definitely. That passion feeds persistence, I think, when it comes to uh, 
keeping going back and just sticking with something that a lot of people would give up. What advice would you give to someone wanting to get into pottery, wanting to enact their passion? That's a good question. I guess uh, find a good teacher. (laughs) And I can't express how much of a difference that teaching can make if you find someone that you learn well from and as a teacher to students you know i see that all the time that not everyone learns well i'll i'll use myself as an example not every child i come across at school they might not learn from me as well as they learn from the next teacher and like some kids i may really reach and then the next teacher that comes in they might really reach those kids that I have missed. So if you are wanting to learn something more in any area, I would say seek out the people that you have a connection with because you'll just learn so much faster. That's a really good point. And a point that I think is really important in today's day and age where when most people want to learn something, their first destination is YouTube. Yes. And that can be really handy. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly handy to be able to quickly punch something in and get some kind of an answer. But chances are you're only going to get a partial answer because a two, three, five minute video is only going to be able to give you so much information. It's not going to teach you. It'll probably just give you uh, a tip. And it, it's not the same thing as speaking to someone who has done it, speaking to somebody who is excellent at it, having those people take you through what they learned and help you avoid some of the pitfalls that they hit. You know, that kind of mentorship is, is really invaluable. And it's not like you only need to find one. You can find multiples. What I find interesting is so many people will go for YouTube and they won't actually reach out, even though reaching out to people is a heck of a lot more available to you than it ever has been. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, YouTube is great. I'm a very visual learner, so I, I learn new things from watching videos too. But as you say, having someone, I find with clay anyways, I need to have my hands on it to learn best and not every craft or new thing that you're going to learn is like that but consider your learning style and then consider finding a way uh, to find a teacher or a mentor or through videos whatever works for you to elevate it where can people find you so you can find me on instagram and facebook cheerily pottery or my website www.cheerilypottery.com Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Thank you. Subscribe to Making a Living Show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow along at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please share the show with someone you know. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.